know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are happy to introduce a new faculty member to the UW-Madison Political Science Department, Professor Reed Lay. Professor Lay's research and teaching interests include autocracy, Chinese politics, local governments, political economy of development, public finance, and judicial politics. Professor Lay has a BA in English Language and Literature and Economics from the China Foreign Affairs University an MA in Economics and MPA from the University of Southern California, and a PhD in Political Science from New York University. He is currently working on a book manuscript that studies how different models of government accountability and political career incentives affect the decision to invest in transportation infrastructure in China and in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today. We, we really appreciate you coming on to 1050 Bascom and giving us some of your time this afternoon. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. The pleasure is mine. I'm very happy to join. All right. So the first couple of things that we want to ask you about are just to kind of get to know you. So first, I'd just like to ask some general questions about your background and how you eventually landed in this faculty position here at the UW. So first, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What was your upbringing like? So I was born in, in mainland China in, in a western province. It's called Sichuan province. So I went to the college in Beijing. And after all of that, I went to University of Southern, uh, Southern California in Los Angeles for graduate school first. That's 2014. And then I went to New York University for a PhD program. I was a very different person when I, when I was in high school because I never thought about ending up with teaching in, in any university. In fact, teaching in such a very prestigious university in the United States, so I never thought about that. So I was a totally different person back in the high school or in the college. At that time, I was thinking about probably becoming a banker or uh, working as a diplomat, but I never thought about becoming a professor at that time. That's really interesting because you have a large breadth of different topics and academic disciplines under your belt. Your undergraduate degrees are in English, literature, and economics from the China Foreign Affairs University. Could you share just some of a, with, with us how your intellectual interests have changed over time and how you eventually made the jump to political science? So for sure. So I... I... First of all, I went to that university called the China Foreign Affairs University. Let me talk a little bit about that university because it's something very foreign to most of our audience. So China Foreign Affairs University is a university affiliated with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China. So its major function is to train the diplomats for China. So when people are admitted to that university, they had the dream of becoming a diplomat in China. I, I bet there are similar colleges or universities in, in the United States where they are they're understood as the credo for the U.S. diplomats. So I carried that kind of dream when I went to China Foreign Affairs University. And in fact, my major, English, English language and literature, that major is most famous for training the Chinese diplomats. So that was my original career plan. But later on, I changed my mind mostly because 
the income for Chinese diplomats are very poor. So I changed the mind because of mostly because of that. Sorry for saying that, but I, I think my, my friends who continue to do that job is very, very, very respectful because they, their, their income is really low and they do such a great job in their, in their job. But later on, I changed my mind, mostly due to income when I was in a very, very early young age. So I decided to become a banker, went to the financial sector. As you can see, income is the most, the most, the biggest driving force behind my career trajectory in the early ages. So I double majored in economics, mostly in international economics and trade. And I also entered in some of the important financial institutions in China today, including the Chinese version of the World Bank which is known as the China Development Bank. And so I entered in the, in the bureau called the International Finance Bureau in that bank. So the job I did together with other colleagues was to see what are the problems for those bank loans. So those loans loan, uh, given to the Chinese companies to invest in other countries. And that was the, was the time where I see the power of politics because most of those Chinese investment in overseas for example, the, the Chinese investment in the iron war in Australia, in Africa, or the, the PV plant projects in Italy, they failed mostly, mostly because of the political risks. They didn't understand what was going on in a foreign country. The Chinese investors, including the state-owned enterprises, they assumed that those foreign governments are going to support their investments in a similar way as those local governments in China are going to do. So they are faced with a very different environment back in the early 2000s. So that was the time where I see the power of politics because the foreign governments are going to act very differently. That motivates me to change my career again because I was persuaded that even if I want to become a good banker, I have to understand politics very well. So I went on to study, I would say political science, I major, I major in public administration, but I mostly studied political science and institutional economics at University of Southern California. I further studied something on uh, the, the research on recent economics and political science. I was again persuaded by those two years, that's a long story, but I was persuaded further that studying political science would be something fruitful. So I went on to study in New York University to further study the part of research I'm interested in. That is a fascinating journey. Thank you so much for sharing with us. You brought up your time at NYU. Your PhD is from NYU, specifically in political science. So can I ask you to speak a little bit about how your research interests evolved as you went through an MA and MPA program and then a PhD at NYU? So there are many things in USC at NYU that have influenced my research. So a lot of them are due to the great advisors I have met with in these two great universities. So I probably wouldn't talk too much about that because you can read about my advisors. They are listed in my CV and people can search for them. They all have their Wikipedia pages. So you can know a lot about them from that. So let me focus more on how the experience in the United States has shaped my research interest. So I got the chance to study in the US in the two biggest cities in the United States, Los Angeles and, and New York. Uh, before I came to the United States, I also got the chance to live or study in the two biggest cities in China, Beijing and Shanghai. So I cannot help but to compare these two biggest cities in China and in the United States. 
There are some disappointing aspects of the U.S. big cities. For example, um, the infrastructure is uh, not very good, is not as good as the Chinese transportation infrastructure. For example, when I when I lived in Beijing, I got um, I can basically pay during 2010, from 2010 to 2014, when I was in college in Beijing, um, I can spend two Chinese yuan. That is basically how much? 30, 30 cents US dollars, right? 30 cents, you can take the subway from anywhere to anywhere in, in Beijing. So that is, that is how I usually travel in Beijing. I wouldn't even entertain the, 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 the possibility of buying a car or because there is no such need. I can go anywhere with the subway system. I can go anywhere with the bus system. The public transit system in Los Angeles is, I would say, does not work very well. Um, if you, for example, I, I, ha I heard many uh, stories where my friends wanted to uh, go to some interview by taking the bus and they usually will be late for that interview because the bus is late for one hour. Um, there's no chance you can make the date on time uh, with that public transit system. New York is much better, but, but there are many things, many problems with the U.S. subway system as well. For example, I had several experience where the subway train just stopped in the midway for 10 minutes. Nobody, nobody knows what, what's, going, what's going on, and it just stopped over there. And people didn't panic. That means people are used to, to such scenarios. So that means there, I think there are some very interesting things about the infrastructure development in these two countries. That is a major topic in my, in my dissertation research. I want to understand why the politicians in China are very interested in first investing in new infrastructure or to upgrading the existing infrastructure projects and why there is such lacking incentives and interest in the US major cities to do the same. So my exact question is, in the case of long, in those new infrastructure, for example, in the Chinese case, to build a subway system, it will take on average six plus years. But a Chinese mayor for any city, the average tenure is only 3.5 years. So they have a much shorter tenure than the time required to complete these large scale infrastructure projects then why do they have the incentive to deliver such long-term infrastructure projects if they are not going to be the person who take the credit for that infrastructure project? The same probably will be true in the United States or in other countries in the world because long-term, there is a mismatch between the long-term required for that infrastructure investment and short tenures of those politicians, a phenomenon that usually will undermine the incentives of politicians to lead and to build those infrastructure projects. That, and that's the research question I have in my dissertation. Unfortunately, I didn't comp really complete that research agenda because I got a very good job before I finished my PhD program. So I jumped in here and then I plan to further work on a book project on these, on these topics. So I'm going to compare the Chinese experience and the US experience, probably some other countries as well. So that's my research, how, it's, how my life in two countries shaped my research interests. Thank you for sharing that. That is, frankly, absolutely fascinating. And, and I agree. I think a 
really, really interesting uh, example of how a person's personal experience can inform their academic or research interests. And I think it speaks to the value of having those kinds of experiences as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. And I want to ask about your upcoming book in a minute, but I want to ask as well, how did you end up at UW-Madison specifically? What was your pathway here? How did the opportunity for your position kind of arise? And what was the uh, process like of landing here? So this will be a long story, but I will make, I will make it short. I got the chance to present one of one chapters in my dissertation. That's the Chinese subway paper I just alluded to a little bit just now. I got the chance to present that paper in Peking University, the best university in China. So they organized a very good workshop where they invited some big names in political science to serve as discussants, which include our former professor, um, Melanie Mannion, as my discussant. So she discussed my dissertation research. Somehow she liked that paper a lot. I don't think that's a good paper, great paper, but she liked that paper a lot. She sees the potential in me. She alluded to me that the Wisconsin Madison is hiring some uh, scholar to teach Chinese politics. And she thought I would be uh, in a good position to compete for that position. And then she encouraged me. Um, that's that's, that's the all, all the reasons why um, I applied for um, UWMS, and that is the only job I applied in 2019. I didn't apply for any other jobs because it will be, as some of, some of the colleagues uh, mistakenly called uh, at that time, that what I did was career suicide because nobody in their fourth year in a PhD program would go on the job market and find a job because usually you have to prepare your uh, dissertation research for additional years, probably you have to complete your PhD program with five or six years, or even some of them are going to take a postdoc, but I was in my fourth year. So usually people wouldn't do that, but there are people encouraged me and that's the major reason why I'm interested in that position. But plus there is another aspect uh, very unique to this position. So my, my position is a joint appointment shared between our department and the Lafroy School of Public Affairs. So as you can see, my research is as much about political science as about policy questions. I'm always interested in and motivated by those real world policy questions. So I think this is a very unique setup for me because I'm really uh, appropriate for this position. So that's another reason why I apply for it. And the third reason, and that reason it only, only came up when I, when I came for the, uh, the campus interview, October 22nd last year, I really didn't like the, the big cities in the United States. I don't think their infrastructure is good enough, they, they, are, they are clean enough. But Madison is a very different kind of small town that I like a lot because I didn't see such great small towns back in China. I, I never seen. China is very good at building big cities. And to be honest, I do think big cities such as Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen probably are more, more pleasant places to live in than New York and Los Angeles. That's my personal opinion. I, I understand many people are going to disagree with me, but especially my friends back in Los Angeles and New York. But I do believe something unique in the United States, as Tocqueville says in his famous book, Democracy in America, is that the small towns uh, ha has their uh, unique attractiveness. I do think Madison is such a great example for such uh, small towns. Well, thank you. I'm sure, you know, I, I myself and, I'm, and the rest of our listeners, I'm, I'm sure will appreciate that, uh, that little endorsement of, 
of our town, which indeed definitely compared to Beijing, Shanghai, most definitely a small town, but, but thank you. But as a result, one thing specifically that I want to ask about, um, having come to Madison right around the start and then middle of a pandemic, how has that been for you? How has that, I guess, affected your introduction to the city and how you've interacted with it? And of course, given your original focus on China, we'd love eventually to talk with you about how China has handled the pandemic differently than the U.S. But just for now, could we just get a little bit of your thoughts on living in the U.S. during a pandemic? Of course. Um, so I moved from New York to Madison in early March. I, I, I moved because New York at that time is already seeing some trends to not to be a great, great place to live in. And I wanted to have the chance to present my research and eventually to move to Madison. So I made the decision within two days. I talked to my advisor and then I said, I'm going to move just within two days. I bought the air ticket and packed my stuff within two days and I moved. So that was before any of the UW Madison or New York University issued any uh, guidance not to travel. So I moved before uh, they, they responded. And when I was traveling at that time, I was, on, I was only two or three of the people in the airport to wear a, a face mask at that time. Clearly, people didn't pay much attention early March. And I, I do think uh, the, the current administration, or, or shall I say the past administration, uh, should, uh, should have acted faster than what we have seen uh, currently. But in terms of the impact on myself, I don't think it has affected me as much as those who rely on field trips for their research. I rely mostly on observational data. That means I collect the data from the uh, government statistically yearbook uh, or other sources where that does not require me to travel at all. But I do understand there are people who need to travel. Another impact on me is that I cannot do a postdoc, uh, which is I originally had a postdoc in Tsinghua University, but um, some of my colleagues know that I shouldn't have joined our department in this, in this year because I should do a postdoc. Uh, I couldn't do that. So these are the only impacts, but I can adjust to those impacts. Uh, I, I, I can do research at, at the same time teach. It's just a, a little bit more challenging, but I still can do that. But that's, that's almost impossible for people who need to do field a few, a few trips. To live in this country uh, during COVID-19, I do think the government should have done probably more and listen to the scientists more. So that's the huge difference I can see. One of the huge differences I can see um, in these two countries comparing China and the United States. There is a Chinese version of Fauci, Dr. Fauci in China. His name is Dr. Zhong Nanshan, Dr. Zhong, let's call, let's call him. So, Dr. John is like the whistleblower to COVID-19. Before that, before he spoke on this topic, nobody knew or nobody acknowledged the, the problem of COVID-19. And he spoke, I, I, I can still recall, he spoke in the mid-January in China. And that was the time when people knew this. And ever since then, the Chinese government basically implemented any suggestions Dr. John made to the Chinese government. I don't see that in this country, uh, unfortunately. I, I, I can see there are many inconsistencies uh, between what the, pre the president's um, directives and what uh, the, the scientists' suggestions are. So that's unfortunately true. I hope there will be 
uh, improvements on this in the in the near future. And speaking of which, the near future, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of that question that we may be seeing a uh, change in administrations here in the U.S. soon. We're recording this on November sixth. We're still kind of right in the middle of the U.S. presidential election and vote count. So I'd I'd be remiss not to ask you. What do you think of the U.S. election process and specifically this cycle in 2020? What has surprised you and what has not surprised you about American politics and elections in your time as a graduate student and now as a faculty member at the UW? So I got the chance to witness both 2016 and 2020 in the United States. I can still recall in 2016 at the list at NYU that the, the day after the election, I think that's a Wednesday. We usually had the comparative workshop, comparative politics workshop where we invite a scholar to present their research. The department canceled that workshop and then replace it with a reflection on the election. That was the, that was the meeting. I see the greatest number of people showing up ever in my department at NYU. People are, were sitting on the floor to understand, to, to listen to four Americanists, you know, scholars who study American politics, to, to understand what, what was going on. Uh, I, even though I have a feeling that I, I'm from, from, from what we can read on those newspapers, now it seems Biden is leading uh, um, the, in the in the in the uh, vote count right now. Even if he wins, I I would say that this election is probably can be also counted as a very close election, where President Trump and uh, Vice President Joe Biden uh, they had very very uh, close elections in those battlefield uh, states, including our uh, Wisconsin uh, Wisconsin state. So this this indeed surprised me and not surprised me. In, uh, both are true. Uh, let me explain them one by one. So it does surprise me in the sense that the results are very different from the polling predictions. If you read those polling predictions from uh, 538 or from other newspapers in this year or in 2016, the results are very similar. They will say that Democrats are going to win with a very huge uh, margin and they are going to win with a very huge probability. Uh, in, in, our, in, in this year, um, the, the number as I saw before the election is Biden is going to win with more than 90% of the chances. So, and they are going to win like the landslide winning on the Democrat side. So that does surprise me in the sense that even after four years, there seems to be a huge measurement error in the polling models and the statistics. So I, I, I'm indeed surprised in that, in that sense. But I'm not surprised in the other sense um, that the fundamental problems, in, as I see to it, the fundamental problems of the, of the United States remain true, not only in, in these four years, remain true probably for decades. Um, the, the same problems that hampered, uh, that, that, that pestered this country in the 1960s is probably the same as they are in today's United States. That's what the Kennedys were fighting against in the 1960s. That's what Martin Luther King was fighting against in the 1960s. That was what LBJ was fighting against in the 1960s. And we do know what happened to those figures um, in the 1960s. And today, I do think that the same problem, as I understand, broadly understood as the inequality problem, is still here in the United States, be it economic inequality or political inequality, they are still here. 
And although I think we have very competent candidates for the presidential elections, I'm a little bit pessimistic in the sense that I don't think those quest- those problems will be easily resolved with any politician in four years, since they have been there for decades. So that is, in my sense, uh, in that sense, I believe, uh, not surprise me at all because the problems are still there, and those problems are dividing this country into two camps, and that does worry me. So that, in that sense, I'm not surprised, but I hope in the future, either you, Sam, or our other students who can come up with brilliant solutions to those problems. And that's why I think my job is also important. I'm going to train the next generation of leaders who can, who can help solve those challenging problems around the concept of inequality. Thank you for, I think that's a very insightful read of the election. And uh, I'll, I'll try my best. I'm not going to guarantee anything on the record today, but uh, I'll, I'll try my best. And then the last thing that I want to ask you regarded to generally getting to know you and also your research and teaching interests is that, as you alluded to earlier, you're currently working on a book that is in large part based on your PhD thesis and research surrounding political incentives intertwined with term lengths and public transportation or infrastructure projects. Could you speak a little bit more about that and maybe how it is either different or shifted from your PhD project? And maybe if you have any preliminary findings or insights? So there, unfortunately, I was overwhelmed by teaching two new courses. So I didn't go any further on the research in this book, but I'm going to, I won't teach in the spring semester. So if I can get the chance to be interviewed again that time, I probably can share more. Uh, But the general question, as I said, is, what are the political incentives for, for politicians to lead the initiatives of investing in uh, those large-scale long-term transportation infrastructure? And China and the United States both had the experience of building such um, infrastructure projects. Um, in the transportation sector, for example, I, we had in the United States, we had the Eisenhower Inter, the Interstate Highways Program. And in, in China today, we have, uh, we have the, 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 the gigantic network of high-speed railway system. So both countries have such experience. But the question I'm most interested in is, why do they have the, or why did they have the incentives to do that back in the 60s in the United States and in today's China? And why in today's United States, for example, after a few of the students in the past, why can't the United States build high-speed railways? There, there were proposals entertained, at least in California, or, uh, or some of the, uh, uh, between uh, Nadava and, and, and California from, from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. So those all eventually failed. So I, I was interested in why the, those failed. So I have to collect more data, but I can share some of the anecdotal um, stories with you. So we all know uh, a, 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 US pro, a U.S. politician, uh, Bill Clinton. So he first served as a governor, all right? And he lost the, 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 the first chance to be reelected. The major reason why he lost that reelection was he was trying to build more roads in his state. And that led to more tax to the working class people. And that was, and he, he embarked on a lot of new programs when he was in, in his young, early, younger age. And that was the major reason why he lost that election. 
So some would say that the tax and other burdens are going to be, going to be the, the, the poison pill for the politicians in this country, because you have to, you, you are promised something in the, in, the in the long future, right? When you, going, when, when you are going to complete that project and when people can really benefit from that project, you are, going to, you are, you, you are asking them to sacrifice for six years and after those six years, you can, you can see something coming uh, from that project. The Chinese case is, is different. Uh, there is no election in China. So that is something fundamentally different. Uh, even if you are going to incur some cost, mostly not tax, but you have to incur the cost in, sen in the sense of noise, pollution, and, uh, and the traffic congestion, right? You have to rebuild some bridge so you cannot use that bridge. So it will lead to some congestion. But people have to bear the cost because of the fundamental institution in China, uh, authoritarian regime. Um, but at the same time, as I, under, and as I research those po local politicians in China, when they complete those infrastructure projects, unlike Mr. Clinton, they are going to have a higher chance to be promoted than to be not elected. So it, it partially explains why they had higher incentive, larger incentives to, to, to build those large scale infrastructure projects. I, I want to share more in the, in the future, but for now, those are the only, the only anecdotes I can uh, share to the people. And I, I, I really hope to share more about my book project in the spring or in the future. Yes, when you're ready, we, we would love to have you back on to discuss that. I think that's a fascinating project. And I think a question that a, a lot of people are asking themselves about infrastructure in the United States. So oh, we definitely take you up on that offer to have you back on later as well. But for the time being, I, I'd also like to ask some questions just generally about Chinese politics and the geopolitical situation between the U.S. and China as this is the area that you have been teaching in here at the, at the UW. So I'd like to start off with just like a really, really broad question. Let's say this was day one of a Chinese politics course. How would you explain China as a political entity in the global international world today? I think that's another great question. In general, I would describe China as still something we don't understand. So this is the first thing I want to tell any of my, I, I told my students repeatedly in the class. Um, China and some black folks, we really don't understand. Um, so it's very difficult to describe what it is like in today's world because the, it, it is a very special existence. It's very different, first, first of all, it, so many of the people would love to describe China as this century's Soviet Union. In some sense, it is, because it's, it represents the, the one of the governing alternatives to the American way or the British way or whatever, Western way of, of democracy. It, it is definitely different from the Western democracy. It's an alternative way of governing a country. Right? And we don't understand it well. To be honest, um, it is more or less still a black box. For example, I, 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 I think my course is going to, is very different from other versions of Chinese politics taught by any professors in this country. Um, many professors would teach the Chinese politics as more or less a course on Chinese history, contemporary Chinese history, uh, starting from either 1949, when China was established, new China was established, 
1979, when China embarked on the economic reform. Uh, I didn't do it in that way. I teach the course in a sense, uh, in, a, in a sense that we want to understand the Chinese political institutions. That's probably the same way that professors are teaching American politics. You want to study Congress, presidency, uh, uh, judicial system, and so on and so forth. We know relatively little about the formal institutions in China. So that actually links back to one of the commonly held wisdom in the past. That is, uh, with the development of Chinese economy, it will be democratized sooner or later. And that was the motivation for, for a long time for the US uh, foreign policy with China. So to help the Chinese economy growing, and it, it, it will become one of us eventually. So there's no need to understand the political institutions in, in that short-lived of authoritarian regime because it will collapse sooner or later, right? So there's no need to understand it. But, the, but until now, we are taught with the empirical observation that China did not collapse. And in the near future, if I, you want me to predict anything, I don't think, I don't think it will collapse either in the near future. So we have to understand the formal institutions, how the courts work, how the party work, how the bureaucracy works in China. And we know relatively little about the, the, the government system in China. In this, on, the, on the one hand, it is designed to be less transparent. The, the Chinese leadership wants it to, to be less transparent to, to people because it wants to make the decision at the top and most of the decisions are made in the background. So you don't know what is going on. But, and on the other hand, we really didn't make the effort to really understand authoritarian institutions. I would say that this research only began after the early 2000s. So it, it is a really, relatively speaking, new research agenda. And more specifically on the formal institutions in China, I don't think it started anyways. Um, so so we should, so that's, that's the area we really don't understand. So let me come back to the original question. So I said that it is still a black box and, and the, the, the most dangerous inference is that since it is something we don't understand, we assume that it doesn't work at all. These are two different things. The fact that we don't understand it is not the same as it will collapse, it will work, it will not work, it will, no. The very fact that we don't understand doesn't mean that it will fail. It probably will work in a, in a different way than we already understand. So the burden is on us, mostly on, my, on me, to understand what is going on in that formal institutions. So that is the first thing I want to, uh, I want the people to know. Sorry for the long response on this question. No, don't worry about that. That was that was great. That was extremely interesting. I think that is incredibly important and potentially perspective shifting thing to keep in mind about the way we understand China and also as students of political science, as many of us who listen to the podcast are, approach how we interact with it as well. So. Thank you. Yeah, that was super interesting. Another thing that I want to ask about, trying to more specifically kind of honing in on to maybe some of this, as you alluded to, more recent analyzation of um, China and the Chinese regime is 
asking, how has it changed in recent years, especially under the leadership of Xi Jinping? So many people would argue that China has changed a lot under the leadership of Xi Jinping. So that is, that is, that is true to some, to some extent. I would say that that is very true. For example, Xi Jinping has re- revised the constitution, allowing him to have the potential to serve for, th- for a third term or even for a fourth term, right? But this is not only the, the, the change that is caused by the new leadership. China is changing very fast itself, no matter who is going to be the president or the general secretary of China. The average growth rate for China in the past 20 years or 30 years is probably around 10%. So that is the kind of economic growth that is unseen for any of the major powers, I would say, in this world, in any history period, period of history. Right. So China is changing very fast, and it does want to make to to rise in the geopolitical structure, right? In the, so wants to have more says in how the global politics is going is is played in in this world. So it it does want it it, it changes in the sense to fight for that influence, and its effort to inc- to fight for the the influence may seem a little bit aggressive or, or as a challenge um, in the eyes of, for example, the, the leadership of, the, of this country or in, in, the, in the eyes of European uh, people. Because the, 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 the share of influence, because China is trying to increase its influence through the One Belt, One Road initiative, right? Through its foreign aid for many, to many African countries, through establishing the so-called uh, uh, um, a new financial institution, uh, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, right? So all of these efforts are trying to help China to uh, to retain the influence on the on the global politics, and that is indeed a challenge. So how are the other countries are going to deal with this rising China and deal with its effort to fight for more influence? So that is still ongoing business. I have, I, I don't have a conclusion on this topic, but I do see this is going to be a huge issue for many countries in the near future. And I think on this thing, Joe Biden has something very smart said on the on the rise of China. So Joe Biden said, I, I still remember his his recent remark on the rise of China. He says that there is no doubt there is competition between China and the United States. But whether that is going to lead to a confrontation between these two countries, that is going to depend on how these two countries are going to behave in the future. Right? So we, we cannot ignore the fact that China and the United States probably are going to, are already the, the two major powers in, 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 this, in, in this century's uh, world. Um, we cannot ignore that. But I don't see the kind of confrontation uh, that existed in the previous century between Soviet Union and the United States already happening between China and the United States. Um, we, we had some kind of conflicts, uh, disputes, I would say, uh, between China and the United States, mostly on trade issues, right? Uh, mostly on the, the currency manipulation issues, these economic issues in the past, and more recently, probably in the, in the issue of Taiwan, more recently. But uh, um, most other issues, uh, I, I didn't see the kind of confrontation at that scale between Soviet Union and the United States in the 1960s, for example. I didn't see that uh, between China and the United States. But it does not mean that in the future it wouldn't be involved into that kind of confrontation. So both countries have to 
be very careful in the next coming few years. I think that's a really great perspective on it. And thank you for that answer and those, those insights. But of course, in discussing the relationship between the United States and China, we can't ignore the presence of Donald Trump in this relationship as well. And of course, one of the major themes of the Trump administration has been his interactions with China and occasional brush-ups with Xi Jinping. So can you give us some insights into how the relationship between these two leaders has, how you would characterize it and how it has evolved over the last four years and how specifically it's impacted U.S. relations with China over the first Trump term? So first of all, I'm not a friend to either one of them, so I, I don't know how, uh, what kind of the friendship they had or they are not in any kind of friendship, so I, I don't know that for sure. But I can see that um, the, the, the U.S. administration under the leadership of Trump did pose a huge challenge to, to the Chinese leadership. So the, the, the very first challenge Trump posed to the Chinese leadership is the trade dispute between the, the two countries. But more or less, that has been already, I would say, has been already been uh, concluded um, because the, the two countries has, have already reached uh, one, uh, the, the stage one re agreement uh, between these two countries. And, and in, in any case, I, I don't see any of the American administration in the past uh, is going to seriously pursue that trajectory again because both countries already see the 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 problem of having the economic or the trade disputes uh, let me give you some of the evidence recently found uh, from economists recently so indeed trump imposed those duties those higher tariffs on the chinese goods um, since i would say 2017 or 2018 but the chinese government also retaliated and the way Chinese government retaliated is those goods produced by those red counties, the counties supporting Trump or Republicans back in 2016, are going to be hurt more by the Chinese tariff, the Chinese retaliation. So that probably explains why the Trump administration, the Trump first administration of, of Donald Trump, very quickly reached an agreement with uh, the Chinese government, even though he, uh, President Trump, uh, pledged to have some serious further dispute with China. But in the end, he is going to first, uh, American people are going to, are not going to benefit from this dispute uh, in any case, in the, because you don't import the Chinese goods, but you, you won't move those jobs to the US. The jobs are only going to be transferred to Vietnam, to, to, to Indonesia. And then you are going to import from these countries. So in the end, they are not going back to the United States for the reason, of, for the simple reasons we have learned from Econ 101, because the labor costs are very cheap, are relatively cheaper in those in those places, and they are not coming back to the United States. At the at the same time, you lose more customers from China because they are they are they are not going to buy the American goods due to the retaliation from the Chinese government. So. Both countries, I would say, have learned with these facts that it's not going to be a good thing for, for these two countries to enter into the trade conflict. But there is more to it on the side of China. So another thing the United States has done uh, in addition to the trade dispute is the technology competition between China. So the US government has investigated the case of Huawei. I don't know if you know this com company. 
um, in 5G, right? So it's, it's the U.S. government tried to forbid, uh, at least in the U.S. case, not to have Huawei's equipment in 5G, and they tried to persuade other countries not to use Huawei's products. So the Chinese government recently, due to the trade conflict and these competition between the U.S. and the China, uh, they have learned that we cannot, the Chinese government cannot depend on trade and uh, globalization for growth. So it's recently, and this is really recently, uh, Xi Jinping and the other Chinese leaders proposed the idea that to expand the domestic demand. And just released the, the 14th five-year five year plan of the Chinese government shows that it wants to create more demands and help the firms to not to export but to sell the, the, the products to the Chinese customers. So it does stimulate the Chinese government to upgrade or to reform the economic structure in China uh, because of the, uh, what has happened in the first term of the Trump administration. So there are fundamental challenges due to the first term of the Trump administration. And we are going to learn more about uh, what are the other consequences of those uh, first four years under Donald Trump. Um, but, but as I said to it, first of all, let me conclude, I don't see any further serious um, attempts to expand the trade conflict because both countries really lose both economically and politically. And second, there is a huge change to the Chinese economic structure after uh, the first four years of Donald Trump. Very good. All, all very good points. And I think that's a great summary of the kind of current tensions between the US and China and some of these issues. But one issue that I think is is notably absent there, just as a result of the US seemingly not making it a big part of its negotiations or priorities, is the repression of the Uyghur Muslims that there have been reports of in the country as well, with reports of as many of a million Uyghurs being put in what seem very similar to concentration camps. And as you mentioned, or I guess alluded to, this hasn't really been a big sticking point or issue so far in US and Chinese relationships. So I kind of want to ask a two-parted question here in that first, how should we picture or consider the Xi Jinping regime on human rights? And how, in terms of should we consider them to maybe be a bit more of human rights abusers than maybe we're considering. And additionally, do you think that this will become a bigger sticking point or issue in U.S.-Chinese relations in the future? On the first part, first of all, before any of those questions to be answered, I do think there is a, there is a question that we should answer first. And that question is, do we know enough about what is going on in Xinjiang at all? So the, all the evidence I have seen recently is those reports, mostly from New York Times. And they, they claim that there are some leaked documents and I, and, and I have taken a look at those leaked documents as well. First of all, I'm not an expert on the, on the Xinjiang uh, issues, um, the, the Muslim, the Uyghurs. Uh, I'm not an expert on that issue. I didn't do the research myself, but I, do, I did uh, read the research by other scholars. So some facts would be helpful, first of all. So uh, many people would argue that, at least before Xi Jinping's administration, many people would argue that that, that repression has been the major um, tool that the Chinese government has been using to control the, the, the Uyghurs and the Muslims in 
performance. So that, that is not supported by data, um, at least before Xi Jinping administration. There may be some change in Xi Jinping administration, but that was not the case before. Um, we don't see any significant correlation between the measurement of repression, mostly the spending on the public security. So that is, that is the unit to who, who enforce the repression and the, um, the, 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 the uprising or the, 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 the tax of the, the, the Uyghurs. So we don't see any of the, the, the correlation at, in, at, in that sense. The, in the past, the major tools the Chinese government used to govern Xinjiang province is through economic tools to create more jobs for Uyghurs and to increase the spending on education and other uh, distributive goods so that you are going to uh, be more compliant to the Chinese government. I wouldn't say this is China specific. This is the kind of tool adopted by many governments across the world. Right? If, you want to, you want, if you want to govern some, some group of people, you, there are sticks and carrots. Carrots are really more useful because sticks are going to be very costly politically and potentially also economically because people are going to attack. And there are uh, many, many attacks. Some of them probably can be categorized by, as terrorist uh, attacks by the Uyghur people against the Han people, uh, the Chinese people in the mainland China. So that was the case before um, Xi Jinping administration. Due to those attacks by Uyghurs, I do believe Xi Jinping believes that public security is more important than he did implement this new policy of uh, those concentration camps or the Chinese government calls the, 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 the career or job, job training camps. But how many people were, were, were sent to those camps and how many of them are forced to join those camps or how many of them are volunteering join those? Because I talked to some of the younger and the competent, so people in my age, I'm not too old, I hope you can agree. Uh, so I talked to some of my friends uh, who are now working in the central government has very competent uh, bureaucrats. They had some experience dealing with the issues in Xinjiang, and and they told me that their account. I'm not saying that they are prop, they are absolutely correct, but their account is that there are many of those people who are in the camps are really to to receive the training in 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 in, in some kind of skills. So that is also consistent with the earlier research on Xinjiang province, because in the past, as I, as I mentioned, there, there, I think this is a consensus in, in Chinese politics that in the past, the major tool is to use those jobs, those education spending to, to elicit their, their, their support. Uh, so if you provide such training to, the, to ordinary people, uh, that, that's, that's delivering the same kind of function as, as before. But they also confront with me as well that there are as well a group of people who are sent to the, those, those camps for the purpose of repression. So the Chinese government, you probably want to ask this in, as a next, next question, the Chinese government has developed a very strong capacity to uh, collect the data and to identify who are probably more, are going to be more dangerous to the regime. So the Chinese government identified which are the more dangerous people and then sent, to, sent them to the, to the camp. So that does exist. But the question is, how many of them are these secondary, second category, which, which means that they are repressed. They are identified by the regime to be dangerous people and then sent to the, to the camp. And how many of them are those people who received the job training, who voluntarily joined the, 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 the 
the job training camp. I don't know that part. Uh, I don't think any of the any of the, any of the empirical evidence has has answered this part of question uh, already. Uh, so if if it is a widespread um, second category that is mostly for repression, then that is that is definitely an answer to your earlier question. Uh, Xi Jinping administration is at least trying to uh, deteriorate the the human rights practice at least in Xinjiang province. Uh, we don't know that much about other provinces, but at least in Xinjiang province, the Uyghurs, there is a deterioration of uh, human rights practices. Um, but if the, the case is that the majority are voluntarily joining the camp for job training, because you don't pay, you don't pay tuition at all, and the government teaches you how to cook, how to uh, drive, so on and so forth, then the people are willing to, to, to join such classes. If the majority are those, People, I wouldn't say the practice of human rights has significantly deteriorated because similar things have even before Xi Jinping administration. So this is the part that we need to know more data before we answer those two questions. As this links back to my argument earlier, the Chinese government is designed to be a black box. And we shouldn't pretend to, 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 to think that we already know enough to evaluate it. My best to get my, my take on this is we need more evidence, more systematic evidence on what is going on in those in those camps. There are many interviews with those who are in, repressed. I understand there are, uh, but what is the general pattern? What is the systematic pattern? We still have relatively little evidence because those interviews of the repressed people before Xi Jinping administration they existed as well. So there are probably as, as many people interviewed uh, who were repressed before Xi Jinping as many who are repressed after Xi Jinping. So that cannot be answered with systematic data. Um, so I am kind of the people, so to be a little bit conservative on, the, uh, on this phenomenon who, where, where I find we need more data to, to understand what is going on. And, and your, your second question, uh, very quickly on this, uh, I don't think it will rise up um, as a major issue between the U.S.-China relationship uh, in the near future, because in the near future, probably COVID-19 uh, and probably Hong Kong are going to and 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 the Taiwan more recently uh, are going to be more heatedly discussed between these two countries. That's my. And, you know, we're, we're running low on time here, and, and I want to be respectful of your time. But the, so the last question I want to ask is, what should I have asked you today? Or is there anything else that you feel like you would like to add on this topic or anything you feel like is maybe underappreciated or isn't talked about enough in terms of either Chinese politics or the U.S.-Chinese relationship or just anything on the subject that you would like to add or that you feel like our listeners need to know? So I would, I would add a few sentences on this. I, I thank you for um, giving me this, this opportunity to, to, to add a little bit over there. Um, so I see there is a, there is a challenge between um, the younger people uh, of American students and the Chinese students. In the past, when I, I'm talking about in the 1990s, um, in terms of how young people think, I would say Chinese people and American people would think very similarly uh, in the 1990s or, or, or in the 1980s. 
Chinese students at that time were eager to learn from the United States. They want to understand why the U.S. is more productive, why the U.S. is more prosperous, why the U.S. is good at, as you mentioned, um, uh, protecting human rights, many of those. But in, in recent years, I have found the, the tendency that people cannot have the ability to sit down and hear each other out. We have to understand there to, and to admit that Chinese people and American people, they were raised up in very different environment and they were taught about different values to respect so they believe in probably very different things and especially in recent years china has developed very quickly and is already a very prosperous country as well so people become very confident in them in what they believe in as well so they are more like talking to each other not hearing each other out so if there's anything i want to add over there is to try your best to talk to I understand we have many students from mainland China to, uh, studying our department, and we have many students who are learning Chinese language and trying to do something in the future of both China and the United States in, 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 in the U.S. as well. So for those people, listen to the other, guy, uh, the other group of people, what they want to say first. To set aside your personal beliefs and really understand, put yourself in the shoes of the other group of people and then think whether why they believe in this way and why they would think in this way before we make any judgment on the other group of people. The ability to listen, in my opinion, is, a, is going to be a huge challenge. And this is not a challenge only for Chinese students and American students in the future. This is already, in my opinion, go back to your earlier question, a problem for Democrats and Republicans in this country as well. I have seen some data showing that 80% of the Republicans wouldn't allow their children to marry a Democrat or 70% of the Democrats wouldn't allow their children to marry a Republican. So these are the kind of um, data that worries me because you must have the ability to hear the other person out and then you have a constructive discussion. So that's all I want to add as the final point. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. We, we really do appreciate your time and the ability to have this discussion with you. So thanks once again. Ah, thank you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.